So this summer, we've been looking at uh, the fruit of the Spirit that's found in Galatians 5. And when looking at a list like we find in Galatians chapter 5, it's important to remember that we can't just pick and choose from the list. We can't see some of the character attributes that are listed and not others. And the reason for this is because Paul does not call this list the fruits of the Spirit in the plural. Rather, he calls it the fruit of the Spirit in the singular. In other words, Paul is describing the fullness of the character of someone who's been changed by Jesus Christ. But it can be really easy for us to look at a list like this and cherry-pick an attribute that already lends itself to our disposition. We can look at something and see maybe like faithfulness. And we can say, yeah, I'm a, I'm a faithful person. I'm faithful to confront people when needed. I'm the kind of friend that will tell it like it is. I'm not the kind of guy that's going to pull punches. But I'll say what needs to be said. I'm faithful. But this kind of faithfulness could lack the sort of temperance that is meant by gentleness, which we'll look at today. The point is, it's easy to look at our own proclivities and inclinations and affirm ourselves, or to use a list of moral qualities, like is found in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, and use it to see flaws in other people. But my friends, we must always remember that the Bible is always a mirror before it's a window. The Bible is always a mirror into our own hearts before it's a window to look into others' hearts. The fruit of the Spirit is nothing less than Jesus Christ being formed in us. The fruit of the Spirit could also be called the marks of a supernaturally changed heart. What do lives look like that have been radically changed by Jesus? Being radically changed by Jesus is what happens at conversion. It's new birth. It's regeneration. It's a radical change from the inside out. Conversion is God giving us a new heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. And now that Holy Spirit, this heart can now seek to love God and love our neighbor. And this new heart that we have, it grows in godliness as we walk in the Spirit. And we start like newborn babies with God. And we grow into the likeness and the image of Jesus. And our lives begin to more and more manifest the fruit of the Spirit, which is nothing less than the very character of Jesus Christ. So this morning, we get to the second, uh, second last of the character traits that Paul gives to us, which is gentleness. And our pattern in the series has been for us to go to another place in the scriptures that kind of gives us more material to exposit and to dive into, to better understand the meaning of the word that Paul has given us. Rather than just me trying to elucidate the meaning of this one word here in Galatians, we're going to go to a different text where we can really sink our teeth into a little bit more and get at the idea that Paul is expressing to us in, Philipp- excuse me, in Galatians 5.23. So this morning we're going to be in Philippians. Philippians chapter 1, excuse me, chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. So I'm going to read to us uh, both the text in Galatians, and I'm going to read to us the text in Philippians. Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. You flip over to Philippians, just a few pages. 
Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore... God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we are grateful for your word. Lord, we long to be the kind of people that you lay out for us here in Philippians chapter 2. We long to be a people that are of one mind, one love, one accord. But Lord, we ask for your help. We ask, Lord, that through the preaching of your word and by the power of your spirit, you would confront the things in our hearts, Lord, our selfish ambition, our vain conceit. Would you help us, God, to manifest the fruit of the Spirit in our lives? Would you build your church to be a countercultural community, a community of love, a community that has a testimony to the watching world, Lord? We pray that you would use this church, God, to reach the lost in Portland, Lord. Lord, we long for your beauty and your glory to be manifest in our lives. All of us come this morning, God, as beggars, Lord. We come as broken people. We all come as people who've had tough weeks, not loved you as we ought. And God, we are here to hear from your word, to be ministered to, God. We pray, Lord, that in these next 40 minutes, you would do what only you can do by the power of your spirit, that your people would be built up, that we would be again enamored with the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask great and mighty things, and it can only be done if you grant it to us. So we ask in faith, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The word that Paul gives us in Galatians 5.23 is gentleness in the ESV, or meekness in older translations like King James and American Standard Version. And the word means the quality of not being overly impressed with one's self-importance. The quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's own self-importance. It's gentleness or humility. The word here is the same word that Jesus uses to describe himself in Matthew eleven twenty-nine when he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Same word. 
But there's also another word that is tightly connected to this word gentleness. And it's the word that's more often translated humility. In fact, Paul uses the word for gentleness and the word for humility in Ephesians 4.2 when he says this, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love. Both words are present there. They're the words tapeno and the word prautes. One means more closely gentleness and the other one means more closely humility. But in fact, when you look at any theological dictionary, and one that I looked at this week, there's two entries for this word humility. And one is the word prautes and the other is the word tapenos. So they're very tightly connected in their meaning. And the reason for this quick lesson in Greek semantics is to prove to you the legitimacy of going to Philippians chapter 2, to understand what gentleness or humility is. So Paul says in verse 4, as he says, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. We're going to dig in a little bit here to Philippians chapter 2 to get at this idea of humility and gentleness. What's interesting, I think, though, at the outset is that many of the attributes of the fruit of the Spirit are acknowledged and beloved by our culture. Things like patience, things like kindness, goodness. But this might be the attribute that we find the most radically and culturally repulsive. Humility. To not be overly impressed by a sense of one's own self-importance. That is the opposite of the message of our culture. In fact, it's always been the opposite of the message of the culture, at least comparing to when Paul wrote to now. Because Paul is writing in the middle of Greek Hellenistic culture, and humility was never seen as a virtue. It was always seen as weakness. And the same is true now. Humility isn't seen as a virtue, it's seen as a weakness. And the reason for that is because we live in a culture of radical individualism. We live in a culture that just... just just deifies what it is to be an individual. I was reading this week in a book by Jonathan Lehman, and he was defining what love is. And he's describing what love is and how our culture defines love. And he says this. He says, I know that you love me when you let me be myself. Or I know that you love me when you let me express myself. Or I know that you love me when I can be the best person I can be. And you know I love you when I allow you to do the same. That's the message of our culture. The message of our culture is radical individualism, not humility, not to have a, 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 a not overly impressed view of oneself, but to radically express anything that you want to. The fullness of who you are, human flourishing, is to be everything and anything that you want to be inside of you. And anything that comes against that and says, no, that's wrong, is seen as bigotry, it's seen as intolerant. And it's not the message of the Bible. And it's not what's meant by humility. Part of what Paul is doing here in Philippians chapter 2 is he's laying out a vision of what human community, of what Christian community could actually look like. That's what he says in the first couple verses, verse 1 and verse 2. He says, be of the same love, be of the same mind, be of the same accord. He's laying out his vision for what he wants the church in Philippi, the Christians there, to look like. 
So as we're going through this this morning, I want to lay out that same vision for our church. The same vision for the gathering church. A vision of what we ought and what we can look like. A vision where we can have a kind of relational atmosphere where God would be pleased to give us wisdom for how we prioritize our personal preferences that are God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, that are gospel-shaped, and that are others-focused. That's Paul's vision for the church in Philippi, that they wouldn't count their own opinions. They wouldn't count themselves. Instead, they would count what others are concerned for. So right at the outset, though, Paul is giving us a problem. The problem comes to us in verse 3, the first part of it. So as we look at this, let our prayer this morning be, as you're listening to me preach this, that we, God would free us from self-centeredness and that he would grant to us the freedom to not only care about our own interests, but to care about that of others as well. But there's a problem that he gives us in the beginning of verse 3. There's something so pervasive that's in the church. There's something that's so pervasive in the church he's talking to, and there's something that's so pervasive in our own church. I want to highlight something for us, though, real quick, and it's, it's this. Problems exist in the church. Problems exist in our relationships. Problems exist in our marriages. Problems exist in our parenting. And this might seem like a totally obvious statement, But too often, I see that we react with such shock and horror when we actually face a problem. When we actually come up against someone who has wronged us. When we actually experience some kind of division in the church, we're just shocked at it. But we shouldn't be. The entire New Testament is written to address problems in the church. We ought not be shocked that one actually pops up every now and again that we have to address. It ought not be surprising to us that the imperative forgive, just the imperative forgive, occurs 33 times in the New Testament alone. 33 times the New Testament says forgive. The imperative form, the command form, not forgiveness, but forgive. 33 times. We ought not be surprised then when circumstances come our way when we actually have to forgive someone. The entire New Testament is written to address it. But there's this hindrance. There's this hindrance to the kind of human community that Paul lays out in verse 1 and 2, and it's listed for us in verse 3. The NIV says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Do nothing from selfish ambition or or vain conceit, I think King James says. There is a selfish ambition, and there is a vain conceit in the church, and exists inside of every single one of our hearts. The problem in the churches resides in every single one of our hearts. Selfish ambition and vain conceit. Selfish ambition is fairly easy to understand. It means that you desire things for yourself. But vain conceit is the reason... For selfish ambition. Vain conceit is the reason for selfish ambition. There is this amazing Greek word that's describing what vain conceit is. It's its word that says kinodoxia. 
And this word kino, for kenosis, means to empty. And this word doxia means glory. So it's saying that we are glory empty. It means to have actually a sense of one's lack of glory. It's a desire to have significance, to have meaning, to have worth. And that's the state of the human soul. The state of the human soul is a desire to have significance, meaning, and worth. It's glory empty. It's kenodoxia. Feeling like you're not important is what leads to divisions. Feeling like you're not significant is what leads to rivalries. Feeling like you don't have value or worth is what leads to selfish ambition. You're glory empty. That's why you fight. Someone slights us and we start something. We get our feelings hurt. We feel like we should be treated otherwise. We feel lost and empty, though, in this world. We're gloryless, it seems. We feel like we don't matter. We want people to say that we do matter. We want people to notice us. What's ironic, though, is that the opposite of humility is pride. And that's what I'm describing for us this morning. I'm describing what pride is. It's a hunger for glory. It's to grab God's status for one's self. Jerry Bridges, he defines pride as contending for supremacy with God. Contending for supremacy with God. He says it's to rob God of legitimate glory and to pursue self-glorification. Pride is to seek self-glorification. Pride manifests itself in selfish ambition because there really is this reality of a darkness of the soul. And we live in this fantasy that we can live as our own gods. We define love as letting us live as we ought to. Yep. To find self-fulfillment. This isn't real. <laughs> define self-fulfillment. What was I talking about? Something about gloryless? Or... We define love as letting us live as the way we ought. Define self-fulfillment. We ride the endless cycle of trying to fulfill ourselves. We try to fulfill ourselves with possessions. We try to fulfill ourselves with achievements, with sex, with money, with status, with good looks. It's easy to consider what it is in your own life. Because just think about what one thing in your life, if you lost it, would cause you to be devastated. Not just disappointed, but devastated. Is it your bank account? Is it the status that you have before other people? Is it the job that you have? Is it your position in the church? Is it your good looks? What do you think about? What consumes your thoughts? What fills that void in your soul and in your heart? How long do you spend in front of the mirror in the morning? We do it every time we meet a new person. Every time we meet a new person, we wonder how we measure up. We compare ourselves to them. We seek to fill our kenodoxia at their expense. How does this look in our lives? Well, we've been talking about forgiveness. When somebody actually wrongs us, somebody actually slights us, 
and we can't forgive, it's because we think that that person, we are more worthy than that person is. That somehow we can bandage our soul, that somehow we can bolster our worth and significance by not forgiving. Because there's a pride in that. There's a pride in that that says, I am more worthy than that. I am not worthy to be treated that way, so I'm going to hold this this offense up, I'm going to wrap it up tight in my heart, and I'm not going to let anyone touch it. If it's at its core, at its heart, it's seeking to fill a glory void in us because, my friends, we were made to live forever. We were made for glories upon glories. We were made to be in the very presence of God, face to face with Him, where there is fullness of joy. But we rebel. Our hearts rebelled against God and we sought glory elsewhere. And that's the problem. That is why there is selfish ambition in the church. And that's the, true, the hindrance to true human community within the local church. So what's the answer? The vision of the church is in verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord in one mind. The problem is in 3a. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. And the answer is in 3b. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Humility. The Bible gives to us an entire different vision of what the world ought to look like. The word humility alone occurs something like 270 times in the Bible. It's totally countercultural to the way the world thinks. Jesus says in Matthew 5.5 in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It's the whole point of the Bible. The whole point of the Bible is that we need to come to God with empty hands and broken hearts. That's the whole point of the Bible. The whole point of the Bible is that we are broken before him and he is a gracious and merciful God who will take us back if we repent and turn in faith and trust to him. But when we come to him in a position that's not Matthew 5.5, when it's not coming in a disposition of meekness and humility, we say, God, accept me for this, accept me for what I've brought. It totally violates the entire nature of the gospel. Because the entire point of the gospel is that we are broken and far from God. That we have nothing in our hands to bring to Him, but He graciously came to us. He condescended to us in Jesus Christ that He might bring us back to Him. We were so broken, so sinful, so far from Him, that the only thing that could happen was that Jesus Christ Himself had to punch through our universe, take on our skin, and live among us. And when the reality of that sinks into your heart, it will begin to make you a humble person. You'll begin to see that you bring nothing to Him. You bring nothing to God but your sin and brokenness. It's the entire point of the Bible. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Luke one fifty two, it says, He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. Humility is the only disposition whereby we can actually come to God through Jesus. He came to save those that were broken and far from Him. So what does it look like in our lives? Look at verse 4 with me. He says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, the word interests there is, is a filler word. It's not in the original. In the original, it's open-ended. 
It basically just says in the original, let each of you not only look to his own, dot, 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 but also to others. And I think Paul's point here is to leave it open-ended so that we can fill in the blank. So it could be, let each of you not only look to his own financial affairs, let you not only look to your own property, or to your own family, or to your own health, or to your own reputation, or to your own education, or to your own success, or to your own happiness. Don't just think about that, he's saying. Don't just have desires about that, he's saying. Don't just strategize about that. Don't just work towards that, but look to the financial affairs, the health, the family, the reputation, the education, the success, and the happiness of others. It's brilliant the way he's written it, because the possibilities are simply endless. What would it look like? What would it look like in your life if you just didn't look to your own? What is God saying to you through this text this morning? Don't only look to your own, but also to the of others. He goes on. He tells us to consider others better than ourselves. I struggled with this for a long time because it felt like the text was telling me to lie to myself. I struggled with this for years. It's like, you're really good at algebra, okay? Well, actually, I'm not. So Vanessa's really good at algebra, (laughs) But let's just say I'm really good at algebra. And so-and-so, and Vanessa's not. We'll just flip this. This is good. So I'm supposed to tell myself that she's as good as algebra as I am? That doesn't make any sense to me. But I don't think that's what Paul's point is. I think Paul's point is, will you count this other person as worthy of your help and encouragement? Not are they worthy, but will you count them as worthy of your help and encouragement? Will you serve this other person? Will I take thought not just for my own interests, but for the interests of my brother or sister? Will I encourage my brother or sister and take the time to help build them up? Will I stop doing what I'm doing and show interest in another human being? You know, this is the disposition of Jesus. Jesus is God incarnate. And his ministry was marked by radical servanthood. He took thought not only for his own interest, but for ours. He counted us as greater than himself. Remember Luke twenty-two, twenty-seven. Who is greater, he said, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. He considered himself. He counted us greater than himself. You know, two ways that this also looks to begin to manifest humility in our lives is to realize that everything in our life is a gift. Humility knows 
that it is dependent on grace for everything that it has. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You know, humility is the disposition of spiritual leadership. You realize every single one of you in this room is in some capacity a spiritual leader. In some capacity, you're in a chain of discipleship. There's someone who's discipling you that's in front of you, and there's someone that's behind you that you're discipling. Every one of you is in some form of spiritual leadership. And the mark of spiritual leadership is one of humility and gentleness. It's the only way it can be. Remember, Paul says in Galatians 6, 1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Paul says of his own ministry in 1 Corinthians, he says, what do you wish, that I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Paul tells Titus, he says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle. And to show perfect courtesy towards all people. In the context here of Titus, this sense of gentle or humility means a patient trust in the midst of difficult circumstances. Paul describes to Timothy what a spiritual leader looks like in 2 Timothy 2.24. He says this, he says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. What's striking about this spot in 2 Timothy is that the disposition and the gentle attitude of the leader is connected to the potential outcome. The next verse says, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. The disposition of gentleness from the leader in his correction or in her correction is directly tied to the potential response of the one being corrected. If you correct and aren't quarrelsome, and you do so in a spirit of gentleness or a spirit of humility, knowing that everything that you have, you've received from the Lord anyway, and that knowing that any offense that has been caused to you, you've caused a greater offense to God anyway, so you have no right to hold it against this person, coming to them with that disposition is what God may use as the means to grant that person repentance. That's amazing. It's amazing that our own disposition, our own gentleness, our own humility, our own gospel fluency in our own hearts is connected to the way that God will use us in someone else's life. There's a sense here when he's talking about the Lord's servant where he's saying a servant of the Lord, which is all of us, he says, must have this sense of gospel clemency. The sense where we can't hold offenses against other people. That we're in no place to be in spiritual leadership. That we can't actually help another person until the gospel has trickled down from our heads to our hearts. When we know that our offenses against God are far greater than what anyone has ever done to us, then we can actually be effective in someone's life. It's got to be true, my friends. 
The gospel has got to go down in your hearts. You've got to come to God with open hands, with a broken heart, in meekness and humility. And then and only then can you experience the free grace that's offered to you in Jesus Christ. And then you can be effective in someone else's life. Paul, let me finish with this. I think it's, there's a striking place. There's a striking place in the book of Acts. I think it's Acts chapter 13. And the church in Antioch is just blowing up. Barnabas is there. Things are going great. People are being converted. The church is just growing at a rapid, rapid rate. And I think it's incredibly striking to see what Barnabas does next. He's in the midst of a growing church plant. He's a successful church planter. He sends for Paul. He sends for Paul the Apostle to come. He sends for the man to come who's a better, more effective leader and teacher than he is. He doesn't count his life as something to be grasped. His heart is for the people. He's realized that the church has grown beyond his own gifting and limitations. And he calls for Paul. Because there's something that's been wrought in Barnabas' heart. Barnabas has begun to fill the kenodoxia. The glory that we all seek for in ministry positions, in life positions. Barnabas has begun to get it. He's began to let Jesus Christ in his life and the fullness of his glory and the fullness of all who Jesus is come into his own heart so that he can hold things with an open hand. He can say, we need Paul here, my friends. We need someone else here who's better than me at these things. And we struggle so much with that, don't we? We struggle so deeply with that. We hold our positions tightly. We're, we feel miffed when someone comes alongside us or someone's actually better than something at us. I struggle with it. We all struggle with it. But it's possible. It's possible for the truth of the gospel to go down deep into our hearts, to give us a gospel clemency so that we can be like Barnabas and hold our lives and our achievements with an open hand. And that's actually what Paul does. If I had time, we could spend 30 weeks on this text. If I had the time, I would show you down how in verses 17 and 18, Paul begins to use himself as an example. In verse 17 and 18, he says that even if I'm poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. He says it about Timothy. He uses Timothy as an example of this in verse 19 through 22. He says, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your own welfare. Literally, it says, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your interests and your things. It's the exact wording in verse 4 that describes Timothy. It says it of Epaphroditus too. Paul is going through and saying, this is how we're trying to live among you. If we had time, we could unpack that all. But let me close us with this, our point three. How do we actually get this though? How do we actually get this kind of humility in our lives? Because there's something a bit ironic about humility. Because if you consider the most humble person in this room, and you walk up to him and said, what's the secret of your humility? You would have just blown it for him, okay? (laughs) 
Because if you asked them, and they, and they started to say, well, actually, it's this, this, and this, you'd be like, oh, you lose. Uh, you're the next humble person in the room. How do you do it? And eventually, you could be the most humble person in the room because you could get everyone to share their secret with you. Okay, someone gets it. <laughs> the point is, you can't work directly on humility. Because as soon as you do, you've lost it. Humility has to be the byproduct of wanting something more than humility. Because if not, it's still all about you. If you just want to be humble, it's still just all about you. You can't look at you, my friends. You have to look at another person. You have to look at Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul does for us. What Paul does for us in verses 5 through the end is he gives us a song. Most scholars are convinced that what Paul is giving us is an original hymn. An original hymn of the early church and how they sung about Jesus Christ. And he gives us a promise in verse 5. He says, have this mind among you which is yours in Jesus Christ. It's yours, my friends, in Jesus Christ. But we can't get it by simply looking at ourselves. We can only get this kind of humility. We can only get this kind of disposition wrought in our own hearts by looking at Jesus himself. He emptied himself, it says, by taking on the form of a servant, in verse 7, being born in the likeness of men. Do you know what that word is? It's kenosis. He emptied himself. Emptied himself of what? This is the long debate of theologians through the ages. Did he empty himself of his deity? No. No, that can't be it. He emptied himself of his glory. It says in Isaiah 6 that if you stood before Jesus in that realm of glory, in that realm of heaven, just the sense of him would be so beautiful, awe-inspiring, that you would fall on your face and say, I am so unworthy to be in his presence. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, full of beauty and glory and power and strength. But when he came, when he condescended to us, it says later in Isaiah, in 53.2, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He emptied himself of his glory, my friends. He emptied himself of his glory so that he could give us the fullness of who he is. So that we could have that glory and share with him, share with him for all eternity. He gave up the one thing of significance and meaning in his life for your sake. So that you could have it. And my friends, what's awe-inspiring and astonishing about this is that is what it means to be in the very nature and the essence of God. To be God means to be one who does not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The nature of God is that he is a self-giving God. He gives himself freely in love. He created the world as an overflow of love. The very nature of God is, is, is that he's utterly for human beings. He's utterly for the other. He gave up his glory so that you could have it, my friends, so that you no longer need to be like you were in verse 3, fighting and posturing and positioning and maneuvering, but all the significance, all the joy, all the love that you need is freely given to you by faith in Jesus Christ who left his glory for you. That means, my friends, 
It means, my friends, that the way up is down. It means that the way to be truly rich is to give things away. It means that the way to rule is to serve. It means the way to be happy is to not seek your own happiness, but to seek the happiness of others. Do you see? Do you see that you were more valuable to him than all the treasures of the earth? You were more valuable to him than all the treasure of the earth that he left his glory, he emptied himself for your sake. When you see that, when you begin to see how far he humbled himself, how far he condescended for you, the humility that he took on, it'll begin to melt your heart. Let it melt your heart now. See Jesus Christ emptying himself for you. Humbling himself for you. And when you see it, and when you behold him, And look at him, and not yourself. My friends, it'll begin to make you a humble person. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your love and your glory. Lord, you have given us far more than we deserve. We pray, God, that you would rot this in our hearts, that we would fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, the one who emptied himself for our sake. We thank you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we come to uh, the Lord's table as we celebrate communion together. Uh, the table is open to all of you who have been uh, repented of your sins, have been baptized, uh, put all your faith and hope in Jesus. If you're part of another church and that describes you, you're welcome to come up and take the elements uh, row by row back to your seat and partake with us. So, yeah, we'll come up row by row, and one of the elders will come forward in a few moments to lead us corporately in communion together.